Welcome to another episode of The Future Labs, a podcast series talking to people building the future today. It's hard to escape a week without seeing the words artificial intelligence plastered everywhere. Is it a revolution or just hype? Today we're talking to Jackie Hunter, a board director at Benevolent AI. Jackie directs the application of Benevolent AI's technology for clinical development and gives the company the insight it needs to operate its unique business model, one which sees it not only researching, but also developing the blueprint for new drugs. Jackie, thank you for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for asking me to talk to the future labs. Jackie, let's start by understanding what Benevolent AI is doing. Well, Benevolent AI is a company that is applying artificial intelligence and machine learning to the whole process of drug discovery and development. Um, We take uh, vast amounts of literature. So if you imagine we've got 10,000 scientific papers that are uploaded to the web every day, we can ingest hundreds of millions of papers, of patents, and essentially use our technology to read those extract the relevant information, and then use that to help our drug discoverers find the right target for a disease, better understand the disease, design better clinical trials for a disease, to test the molecules that we generate, which we believe will have greater chances of success. Benevolent AI's platform doesn't just provide value in drug discovery, and Jackie tells us more about potential applications in clinical trials especially when it comes to stratifying patients? Yes, we can, for example, take a patient population. We've done work in ALS, motor neurone disease, and be able to stratify patients with regard to the rate of disease progression. Uh, In other cases, we've looked at data and been able to, if you like, endotype or molecularly fingerprint patients so that we can pick those patients that are going to be most likely to respond to our therapy. Jackie, in terms of drug development, where does Benevolent AI provide most value? We've evolved as a company. We started off very much looking at the targeted identification space. So we created this enormous knowledge graph with over a billion uh, what we call edges, which is the relationships between uh, drugs, diseases, genes, proteins. And then we can use those to come up with new relationships, relationships which haven't yet been discovered, but based on the known information really ought to exist. And that's where we started. And then we built our chemistry platform so that we could exploit our capabilities to be able to make molecules where we could understand their properties better. We could actually use the computer to generate ideas for making new molecules, which were synthetically tractable. And the upshot is that we aim to make the transition from a starting point to a candidate molecule ready to go into preclinical toxicology testing in about a year. And that compares with an industry average of about three years. And because of that, we will make about 10% of the molecules that would normally be made in that phase. So that has both 
cost implications, but also we believe that our molecules are more likely to go through to the next stage of drug development. Benevolence knowledge is based on what is published, but most published data is not reproducible. We asked Jackie how she tackles the issue of data quality and she clarified that benevolent AI uses other sources of information besides publications. Well, not all our information is publicly available. We pay to access proprietary information. Of course, the question of reproducibility comes up a lot, but because we're sampling such a wide variety and depth of information, we hope that the signal will surface above the noise. And indeed, we train our systems on noisy data so that we can give more weight to those information points that are either more salient or there are a, there is a greater weight of evidence. We can use multiple methods to enhance our confidence in the data. And one of the things that we're particularly proud of is that when we do generate hypotheses, we can go back and look at the source of those hypotheses. You know, what literature did the computer use to be able, or the system use to be able to suggest these hypotheses? And in doing so, we can verify the authenticity of the data. If it turns out that the data, when we look at it, comes from a paper that is flawed or a piece of information that we know has come from a, a source that is not trustworthy, then we can flag that in the system and feed it back in so that that information is downweighted and not paid much attention to in the future. So it's sort of a combination of artificial intelligence and what I often call real intelligence, meaning people going through the results and flagging what should be moved forward and what should be discarded. And I guess there needs to be a following step where you need to confirm the hypothesis in wet lab conditions. Is this correct? Exactly. I mean, I think you're spot on with your comments. We like to think of it as augmenting the intelligence of the scientists, giving them a a much broader range of information, high quality information to choose from. One of the reasons why we bought the labs in Cambridge that we did last year was exactly for the point you made that we need to test these hypotheses at, uh, you know, in, in, in vitro, in a, in, in a test tube or a Petri dish, but also uh, subsequently in vivo. And what we want to do is to be able to do that now at scale and we found it very hard to find academic collaborators or contract research organizations that could give us the fidelity, the access to human tissue, because we prefer to use disease-relevant tissue, and the scale that we needed to be able to, to um, test our hypothesis. Because unlike traditional drug discovery, you know, I'm from a traditional pharmaceutical background, and, and there, if you were thinking about new targets to work on, new important pathways in disease, you would normally, as a scientist, go to your normal literature sources. I'm a neuroscientist, so I go to, to neuroscience sources, um, obviously picking up other sources as, as, as one could, but as an individual, you're relatively limited by the, um, the tools at your disposal. 
And then you probably work on that hypothesis for about 18 months, refining it, doing some experiments before you got to the point where you were confident enough to present it as a program. When you can generate hypotheses, you know, hundreds at a time and then pick the best ones, you know, you are, are not limited in that way. You have to look at a different way of validating them. Next, Jackie highlights the advantages of benevolent AI's approach compared to traditional drug development methods. Well, I mean, there's no doubt, even if you just look at the, the sort of lead optimization, if you reduce the time from one, three years to one year, you're three times faster. If you make 10% of the molecules, then you're 10 times more efficient. Um, the, the, so from a cost point of view, there's clearly efficiencies to be made. The real value inflection point is being able to pick the right targets in disease. And we've, we've done that for ALS. We're, we're doing that in, in other areas. And then show, moving from animal models of the disease, that this is also the, the, the case in, in man. And one, I mean, one value that the FDA gave in, in 2014 is that if you were only 10% more successful in picking the best target for the patient, you would save $100 million per drug. According to eRoom's law, drug discovery is becoming slower and more expensive over time, despite technology improvements such as high throughput. Jackie then makes a case for how AI allows processes to run in smarter ways, which can lead to better economics and efficiency. What we've done with high throughput screening and you know a, a lot of the investment in genomics is we've created a lot of data. If you take a high throughput screen, you can screen a couple of millions of compounds. And if you think about the cost of each of those data points, it's enormous. You usually estimate it's about a million pounds to, to run and validate a high throughput screen at least. Now, if you could be smarter at picking exactly what chemotypes you need to work on, and you don't have to run 100 million or 10 million or 1 million compounds, but actually by just screening a couple of hundred compounds, you can get to the same point of sustainable leads. That completely changes the economics. It also changes the time component and potentially can give you a greater variety in chemotypes, especially if you start using AI to design new molecules. We, we have clear examples of where a medicinal chemist would be much more incremental in how they iterated in their new chemical structures, whereas we've got compounds that have been suggested by the, the platform that are, are quite a way out in terms of chemical space, and the medicinal chemist would never have thought of them. We then asked Jackie to share some examples of successes using AI in drug discovery, and she referenced a program in motor neuron disease as well as an upcoming pipeline of programs still in stealth mode. Um, we are currently working on a couple of uh, programs in motor neuron disease, and hopefully we'll be able to talk about those next year in terms of what we've been able to do with, with the chemistry. Um, obviously, 
until patents published, we can't really talk about it. But I think the fact that we've been able to generate a pipeline, considering that we only had chemists and biologists join the company in 2016, and we're sitting here at 2019, uh, from our own in-house programs, you know, our first in-house compound has completed preclinical development. Uh, we have a number of other programs that should select candidates this year, and we've got others in, in validation, uh, as well as we in licensed one compound in 2016, which will be completing its phase two trial this year. So I think um, whilst I can't talk in specifics, I think the strength of our pipeline as it already stands is testament to the fact that we are doing things differently. Jackie then explains to us what these benevolent AIs approach. We have to think about um, the unmet medical need. So our first port of call is to think about what diseases, where there is high unmet medical need, do we feel our technology could have the biggest impact? So, for example, there may be the ultra-rare disease where not a lot is known, And here, our technology is not going to be able to have as much impact because there's not that pool of information to pull in uh, and to be able to uh, really better understand the disease pathology. However, if we take inflammatory diseases, for example, or even an orphan disease like motor neuron disease, where there are multiple genetic um, associations as well as a, a by far and away the larger component are people who at this point in time we don't know what their genetic basis is for their disease then we can use our technology much more effectively to begin to pick out those exciting mechanisms and then see whether those mechanisms correlate to a particular endotype a particular type of patient that would benefit most from a therapeutic intervention so it's a combination of Is the disease tractable from a technology point of view? Have we actually got a way of validating our hypotheses in these diseases? Um, an example I'll use with motor neuron disease, we've worked very closely with an excellent group in Sheffield, the Sheffield Institute for Translational Neuroscience. And here they, they get um, fibroblasts from patients and differentiate them in back and, and into Uh, either motor neurons or uh, astrocytes. And we can use that system where motor neurons die in the presence of astrocytes from patients in culture to test whether or not our hypothesis um, are valid. Uh, and those are the types of models that we try to use. As I said earlier, we want to use models that are closest to the patient because we believe they will recapitulate the disease phenotype much more accurately than, for example, an animal model would. Jackie, can you tell us how Benevolent AI's engine works? Well, it, we have a, a very modular engine. Uh, we ingest the information initially in two pipelines. There's a structured pipeline and an unstructured pipeline. We bring the information in, convert it to a benevolent document format, And then we use our uh, entity recognition capabilities to our proprietary 
biomedical dictionaries to uh, recognize the entities. And then we use our natural language processing systems that we have developed through training them on biomedical data to map the relationships of those entities. So that creates our knowledge graph where we have nodes and edges, which are the, the nodes of the entities and the edges are the relationships between the entities. And then we have a number of different pipelines and workflows that allow us to use different types of artificial intelligence to be able to infer relationships, uh, to be able to uh, contextualize those relationships and look at the interrelationships between information in the knowledge graph and, for example, information we're pulling in from other sources that might be very specific for one disease so we can enrich the knowledge graph. So, so what we have is uh, a platform that is built of modular components. We benchmark that platform so we understand if we make any alterations in any component, uh, we can see the implications of that on the, the shape of the graph. And in terms of the chemistry, we have a uh, predictive modeling capability to predict the um, properties. So we can do multiple, multiple parameter optimization of our, uh, in our chemical programs of our molecules. And at the same time, uh, in terms of the generative capability, we have machine learning approaches to retrosynthetic analysis. So we can ensure that we have synthetic tractability in the molecules that the machine platform is generating for us. So it's not one platform, it's many platforms in the sense that we, we it's a modular uh, array and we have many tools that we can use to interrogate the platform, whether they be chemical, genetic or, or, or pharmacological. We asked Jackie how Benevolent AI compared to other companies in the space and what the key differentiator was. Next, she highlights the unique capability to analyze and learn from very different datasets, from publications to genetic information, chemical structures and beyond. You know, over the past few years, since the company was founded at the end of 2013, a number of companies have sprung up. Uh, some were already in existence and have adopted a more artificial intelligence approach. Others are completely new. But nearly all of them are very focused on one particular type of information. It might be genomic in the case of deep genomics. It might be from chemistry in the case of Excientia. It might be you know, patient level data, real world data in the case of something like Flatiron. We have the capability right the way from ingesting literature to create the knowledge for target identification through to ingesting genomic data, chemical synthesis and design, clinical trial, stratification and design. So, so all of these things are really circular as opposed to the more linear route. And we can, for example, use our patient endotyping to begin to ask questions about the mechanisms of importance in those patients in that disease. And that feeds into our target 
FID capability, our ability to mine patents automatically feeds into our model capability for chemical predictive modeling. So we have, a, if you like, a full stack, the full stack that's required for an integrated R&D process. And I think that is our unique differentiator. AI and machine learning tools are available to most, and we're seeing data sources also becoming more and more widely available. How can any AI-based company remain competitive? We asked Jackie what the secret sauce would be. Well, I think the most important secret sauce is always the people. And one of the things that we do do, I believe, very differently and successfully is we how we work is very different. It's very different from a tech company. It's very different from a biotech company. We work in cross-functional squads. It took us about two years to get to the point where we really had a seamless integration between the biologists, the chemists, and the data scientists and the engineers. So we work in cross-functional teams. We have shared objectives. We have a shared language, which sounds weird, but actually you talk benchmarking to a biologist and benchmarking to a data scientist. They think of very different things. Novelty, again, something very different. So the way we work is, is, is different. We have adopted a lot of the agile methodology. And what that means is that we can iterate and cycle very fast. So we can ingest new data sources, we can work on new diseases, and we can think about new models and see how new tools that are developed are, and new algorithms that are developed are really making a difference to what we do. So I, I think that clearly the, the only, was it Einstein said, the best way of, of uh, falling behind is standing still. So that's why we continue to invest in our technology and are always seeking to improve what we do. And, and we do continually benchmark ourselves to check that we are always moving in the right direction. So I, I think you can maintain a competitive advantage so long as it's not just what you're doing, but how you do it is, is, is moving progressively. Jackie, how long do you think it will take for benevolence to have an approved drug on the market? Well, um, I think, I mean, we've got our first phase two data, but that's not from a, a, an AI-derived target. I, I believe if we have a candidate in ALS this year, and we can, at the moment, we haven't found a way of being able to circumvent the preclinical toxicology process, although we hope we'll be more successful getting through it. I mean, I, you know, I think within five years, we would have something that is, for an orphan disease like ALS, certainly in phase three trials, and moving towards the market. That's a very ambitious timeline. That's what I like about the company. We don't, uh, we, we, we don't kind of rest on our laurels. We want to continually push ourselves because actually the, the thing that drives us all, the thing that's brought people here from finance and, you know, uh, newspapers and, and academia, and like myself from the pharmaceutical industry, is we want to get drugs to patients faster. 
we're passionate about involving patients in what we do. And um, I think, you know, for, for us, if we, if we can do that, then, you know, we will have made a real difference. Jackie, I want you to imagine a world 20 years from now. How do you see the future of drug development using artificial intelligence? Well, I think, you know, um, I remember being in a meeting in 2004 and some guy came to predict the world in 2054. And I can tell you that everything he predicted is already happening now. So I'm very hesitant to go out to, to 20, 2040 sort of or whatever. But what I do feel is that I see the beginnings of a seed change in the pharmaceutical companies. I see the potential impact on healthcare systems of things like automated pathology and radiology already here. I see new players like Google with Verily and Calico and Microsoft coming into the sort of drug discovery arena. So of the world in even 10 years, I think will look very different. I'd like to think that we were being much more successfully innovative and that some of the diseases that we treat poorly are better understood and we have medicines for them. Some of the devastating diseases like ALS, like glioblastoma, like progressive supranuclear palsy, I would hope that we would be able to have real effective therapies in practice or in the clinic late stage development. And shame on us if we don't manage to do that because there is a lot of information out there. AI is giving us the technology to be able to really reap the benefit of that. And, um, you know, I, 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 I'm hopeful, actually. I'm very optimistic. I think, I think we had an industrial revolution. And I think that AI has the real promise to, to have a, a revolution in our health and wellness, whether it's how we better manage our health, how we better treat our health, uh, how we diagnose it, um, any, any illness. So I, I, I think 10 years time, I would like to see a healthier uh, nation. I'd like to see a healthier pharmaceutical industry and a more innovative one. Uh, and, and, and generally, perhaps even people not thinking of the drug discovery organizations as the bad guys, but actually thinking of them as the innovators and the, uh, you know, really patient-focused organizations of the future. Jackie, thank you for joining us today. I'm just really grateful for the opportunity of being able to talk about what we do because it's, um, it's really exciting to be here. Where can our listeners learn more about Benevolent? Well, if your listeners want to hear more about us, they can go to our website at benevolent.ai or you can follow us on Twitter on benevolent underscore AI. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Future Labs. This time we talked to Jackie Hunter and discussed how artificial intelligence may play an important role in drug discovery. We learned that Benevolent AI's approach is to digest publication as well as other data sources, process and learn from them in order to generate new drugs to treat pressing unmet clinical needs. Head to thefuturelabs.com for more information and stay updated by following us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook. Our music was composed by David Ibbett and performed by Sofia Savaya Vastek. Thank you for listening to another episode and join us again in a few weeks.